0: Well, it's that time for us to take God's Word and dive in and uh, enjoy and revel in the verities of the Bible, uh, God's, God's truth. We're in Galatians chapter 5, and we're looking at a new section this morning, chap, uh, verses 7 to 12, so find your way there, Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. And to start off, I would like to call your attention to the fact that the Bible defines sin with different words, as you may know or may have encountered, words such as missing the mark, falling short of God's perfect standard, or just plain disobeying him, right? We understand all of those. In fact, each of those words emphasizes uh, an aspect of sin, but the basic idea of offending a holy God, I think, underlies all of them. And one other dimension to sin that Christians know little about I believe, is what I would call spiritual infidelity. Huh? Spiritual infidelity? Yes, both testaments tell us that God is husband to his people and they are his bride. Therefore, sin always has some hint of unfaithfulness behind it. You see, what often happens in the moment that we sin is that we set our affections on something other than Christ and we serve it rather than Christ. And at that moment, we commit spiritual adultery. We are unfaithful. James castigates his entire congregation for seeking friendship with the world, you you may remember, and he calls them adulteresses. When Christians are unfaithful to God by whoring after some cheap substitute, the consequences can be quite severe. The Galatians were in this situation. And Paul models to us how we faithfully minister To the faithful, to be faithful in their walk with God, and Galatians chapter 5, 7 to 12. I've expressed the main idea in our passage this way when ministering to unfaithful Christians, place the responsibility to run the Christian race well squarely on them by calling them to eradicate what impedes their running. Assuring them that they can in Christ do this and avoid God's judgment, and showing them how to discern the self contradictory and inconsistent way of false teachers. There's a lot there, so let's get started. Number one, when ministering to unfaithful Christians, place the responsibility to run the Christian race well squarely on them. That's really the first part of verse seven. Look at the opening words Paul has. You were running well. Now that is a full statement, and it has at least four implications. Number one, Christians are not stagnant in the Christian life. No, Paul says they run. (laughs) He no doubt had the, the, the ancient Greek Olympic Games in mind when he wrote this, and it's one of the favorite metaphors of the New Testament writers for the Christian life. It captures How Christians live an aggressive, persevering, skillful life with fortitude. They don't sit around on rooftops gazing up at the sky waiting for the Lord to return. No, they're busy about God's work in whatever station of life to which God has called them. Faithful spouses, parents, neighbors, citizens, and certainly as members of the local church. No coasting allowed. We run. Number two, Christians are productive in godliness. We run the the right race for the prize. What I mean by that is that we are busy about the right things. Another of Paul's favorite metaphors for the Christian life is soldiering. He is a soldier. Paul says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. So Christians can be busy about the wrong things. I don't know if you know that, or like Martha, place too much importance on good things and miss the most important thing. Our concern is that we produce acts of righteousness, invest in the kingdom, make the faith attractive, excel in love and good deeds, and fight off temptation to sin until Jesus returns. Number three, Christians are subject to the uh, are the subject of the running. They are the subject of the running. This perhaps, I think, is the most important inference that I can make. It's amazing church folk miss this. Christians run. They are responsible to run. No one runs for them. We don't run by proxy. And we're unfa- And. And we are unfaithful to God when we don't run in a way that he has outfitted us to run. We never have an excuse not to run well, even if you lost your legs in war. You are called to run. The indwelling Holy Spirit has enabled us to be responsible runners. Now, related to this, in number four, it's possible to become unfaithful participants in the Christian race. That's a, a last implication I'll make or that that Paul makes, I guess, that I'll I'll point out. Notice Paul's use of the past tense. You were running well. Something obviously happened, and Paul brings it up. What what happened to you? Why are you not running well? Some slow way down in the Christian life, you know. Others are misled by satanic signs down a dangerous detour, which really goes in the opposite direction, and they wind up running in vain. Some just stop. Dead in their tracks. Of all of these scenarios, we might say that the same thing is really true. An unfaithful runner who trusts another way. That's really what we're talking about. Christians are responsible to run well, ever trained for the rough and varied terrain and elevations on the straight way that can can be tedious and boring compared to the ungodly scenic routes that are always there to tempt us. The lesson here for us, I think, is this. To be faithful, to help the faithful to be faithful to God, means to call them to be responsible. And this is becoming more difficult to do in our blame-shifting American culture, where responsibility is a dirty word. It's explained as enslaving. That's right, enslaving. Of course, irresponsibility is what really enslaves. I wrote on this to some extent in my chapter of a book called Whole Council, and I want to quote just a section for you. Quote, The Americanized Christian culture warns us that responsibilities enslave. Real freedom, it says, lies in the relinquishing of responsibilities. Don't worry. It's okay if you... Cannot do it. Don't be so hard on yourself if you're unable to. Oh, it's not your fault for thinking that way. You were victimized. It is this kind of worldly thinking that the pill industry, the psychological world, and even most Christian counseling count on to keep their enterprises thriving. Responsibility is a big part of what it means to be made in the image of God. He has outfitted us with the -the state-of-the-art weaponry, with which to represent him in our good fight, and we must learn to use it. Any counsel that ignores the implications of what we are in Christ succeeds only in securing for us the status of helpless victims. That new identity comes with no responsibility and no freedom." End quote. Now, when it comes to placing responsibility squarely on the shoulders of a unfaithful believer for his faithfulness to God, there are a list of ways that we can engage him, three of which Paul demonstrates right here, and I find them to be among the weight here of the list. The first one, well, just makes sense. Call him to eradicate the impede- what impedes his running. Eradicate it. Get it out. When after... We've confronted a spiritual slacker with God's truth and showed him what he needs to do to champion God's righteousness in this particular area of weakness. We need to tell him to turn in a godly direction and stay running in that direction with ever-increasing speed. And in order to do that, he must jettison everything that slows him down. And as I've said, that just makes sense. The writer to the Hebrews calls those in his church to do just that. He says, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There can be no question from verses 7 and 8 that persuasive false teachers are one prime hindrance. That's one thing we ought to jettison if they're in our lives. Paul said, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion didn't come from him who calls you. Uh, Paul's question in verse 7 is rhetorical. He's not looking for information. He's rather making a statement. The who is generic for any false teacher. And the obvious implication is this. Get rid of this hindrance. This is entangling you. This is slowing you down. You'll notice that there is a connection between the who that hinders in verse 7 and persuasion in verse 8 do you see that these false teachers were no doubt very persuasive error has to be persuasive it's going to be effective and inviting that's why counterfeit faith is so dangerous in an imitation of the it's an imitation of the genuine article and it's meant to deceive It's a lot like virtual reality of the computer world. You put the headsets on and you're in a world that looks and feels so real, but it's really fake. It distorts the gamer's image of himself and allows him to do things that he couldn't otherwise get away with in the real world. Counterfeit Christianity is only an imitation of the original and deceives those who are entangled in it, into thinking that they are something when they are nothing. Now that's noteworthy in verse 8. And I want to point out that Paul uses the word persuasion here. But he really means the Judaizer's teaching. So when he says in verse 7, who has hindered you? Verse 8, this Persuasion did not come from God. This persuasion is the Judaizers' teaching. Instead of saying the Judaizers are not from God, he says this persuasion is not from God. Okay, fair enough. This is a literary device, you may or may not know, that the writer uses to substitute one thing for another for a particular purpose. In this case, Paul puts the effect for the cause... The Judaizers are the cause. The persuasive words are the effect. If Paul really means Judaizers, why refer to them by the impact they have? The answer is in order to emphasize the dangers of such individuals in the church. They are very persuasive. We cannot ignore them. We cannot pretend that they're not there. They're Satan's workers. You know, Peter devoted his entire second chapter of the second epistle to describing just how dangerous they are. Let me read just parts of that. They secretly introduced destructive heresies that denied the biblical Jesus, verse 1. They have uh, indecent behavior. They malign the truth, verse 2. They're driven by greed and exploit Christians, verse 3. They use arrogant words of no value and entice the brethren into error by fleshly desires and indecent behavior in error, verses 17 and 18. They promise a liberating walk of faith that is really enslavement to, to corruption, verse 19. Their character, their message... The lifestyle, all of it is toxic and damning. A satanic doctrine which, like all doctrines, is meant to affect behavior. And these practitioners make it very appealing. They can be very persuasive. Maybe you've met people like that in your life. They can sell a glass of water to a drowning man. Now, don't underestimate their ability. They're skilled wordsmiths, and they can entrap you before you know it. And we need to recognize and jettison persuasive rhetoric like this from our midst. This is why Paul was so adamant at the end of chapter 4, you may remember, about having nothing to do with such people but drive them out of our sphere of influence. It's because false teachers with toxic persuasion are one of the greatest hindrances to running well that Paul warns in verse 9 that if we allow it to persist, it will eventually spread and overtake our lives as well as the life of the Church. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. If that sounds proverbial, it's because it was at that time. Leaven was a rising agent of dough more like a starter that you introduce into a batch of dough that permeates the entire batch and makes it rise. It's also figurative in the New Testament for the persuasive influence that transforms something either for the better or for the worse. Jesus used it both negatively to refer to the teaching of the Pharisees and he used it positively to refer to the vastness of the kingdom of heaven that will house the great number of God's people. Paul uses it negatively here in our verse to refer to this persuasive teaching of the Judaizers. It will influence the lives of Christians in a negative way. You can be sure of that, Paul says. If it's not nipped in the bud, it will overtake not just the Christian's life, but the whole life of the church. It will spread like leaven. The implication of the proverb in this context, I think, is obvious. Get rid of it. Get rid of the leaven before it completely destroys your Christian walk, your Christian testimony, and the life of the church. Get rid of it. Wow, that's, that's serious. I, I agree with Paul and what he calls me to do, but honestly, I find the prospects of ministering to others in the church in this thorough and persuasive way, somewhat daunting? Well, yes, because it is. More often than not, unfaithful believers tend to resist our overtures of love and attempt to help them. And and I believe that that's the case for, well, at least two reasons. One is that they fear the consequences of godly change. They're afraid of breaking off relationships that have a a great deal of ungodly influence on them because of what they might incur. The wrath of extended family members, the breakup of a childhood friendship, embarrassment from a professional colleague. They don't relish being uncomfortable for the truth in those relationships or even to cut them out of their sphere of influence. The other reason they don't listen, and why this is so difficult, is because they are content to remain in their error. They've found acceptance in a bad bunch who care for them. They don't judge them, they accept them for who they are, and the fellowship between them is sweet. But either way, whichever reason, and for whatever other reasons there are, the common excuse for not changing After you've showed them in Scripture what God would have them to do is simply, I cannot do that. I've heard so many Christians, mature and immature alike, utter those words throughout my pastorate. I cannot do that. And at that point, we challenge them the way that Paul does in verse 10. Assure them that they can, in Christ, to avoid judgment. Verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. Part of faithful ministering to unfaithful Christians includes a fair amount of convincing them that in Christ, they can obey God in their context. They can. That little phrase, in Christ, makes all the difference. It means that God has enabled them with the Holy Spirit to obey and walk the Christian life confidently. In all my years of pastoral ministry, I have found it interesting, to say the least, how well people in the church can convince themselves that they cannot obey God in a particular area of their struggle when God clearly has said that they can. And you should know that those who you confront about their unfaithfulness to God in some area of their lives, well, they may be hearing this for the first time, that they can actually obey God. You know, Christians are so good at convincing themselves of lies. One lie is that their happiness is proof positive that they are in God's will. Oh yeah, they have found their sinful deviation a pleasant experience. And and rather than believe the text, they'll allow their experience to validate whether they are in God's will or not. Do you see how that works? How can I be out of the will of God if if everything is going so well for me and I am happier now than I've ever been? That's where living by sight will get you. Another lie is that they would be better off opting out of God's will to avoid the negative consequences. You know, I'm not about negativity. Many in the church fear the consequences of their obedience. In their case, they justify their sin by simply rationalizing it away. They can fit it in somehow, make sense of it all. Or sometimes they just change their whole theology. Oh yes, you always thought Ruth believed in church discipline until she caught her best friend in a sin and refused to confront her and not risk losing her friendship. Now for the first time, in all the years you've known Ruth, you hear her say, that there are other justifiable ways to minister to members who refuse to repent. You've always known Bill to be sound in the faith. He works side by side with you, confronting wayward believers in the church who live together out of of marriage until one day Bill shacks up with someone. He sees the situation differently now because, well, you have to understand they really love each other and he can be the father his girlfriend's daughter never had. Now, regardless of the reasons for their sinful behavior and even their admission to be outside of God's will, they still resist our correction by falling back on some contrived inability to do so. No, they say. I cannot do that. You don't understand. I cannot do that. I say with all sincerity, as if the words come from a real handicapped person. And and it's at this point that we need to ask them, in all seriousness, okay, when you say that you cannot obey God's word at this point, do you mean that you cannot or that you will not? In other words, is it an issue of inability or desire? Is there some organic illness, a health problem, some physical impediment that keeps you from obeying God's word? Or or is it that you just don't want to? And if they're honest, they will admit that it is not that they cannot, but that they will not. Okay, so you're getting somewhere. And at this point, we strive to win them over to their high calling, to aggressive Christian living, to running well, until they tell us it's enough. When professing Christians in the church refuse to listen to us on the issue of their sin, when they dig their heels in and they refuse to repent and change, well then, beloved, our correction needs to turn to warning. And we must not be shy to warn them that the consequences of living with sin in one's life, especially when one acknowledges it but still refuses to do anything about it, can be severe. If we're talking about following false teachers, it's important to explain to wayward members that if they know that those they listen to are propagating heresy and still continue to listen to them and honor them, They share in their judgment. Paul says it this way in the rest of verse 10, But the one who is disturbing you will bear the punishment, whoever he is. Now, there is punishment reserved for heretics, false teachers, apostates, who circle back and star churches and minister falsehood in the name of Jesus. Whether they're honest-to-goodness heretics or simply Christians who propagate damning lies, God will judge them heretics of course face God's judicial judgment at the end of time Christians who refuse to repent face God's or or their heavenly father's parental chastisement in this life and quite possibly we may lose rewards at the end of at the end of time or in the next life but be that as it may i cannot help but infer that paul's purpose for bringing this up to the galatians is not just to assure them that those whom they admire so much are in store for God's judgment, but also to warn them that God will hold them accountable as well for aligning themselves with such characters. He says, in essence, don't associate with these guys. Their teaching will hurt you, and God will discipline you for aiding and abetting them. Wait, what is that? Is there such a thing? Aiding and abetting. Yeah, we can find ourselves on the receiving end of God's discipline because we associate with false teachers, absolutely. The short answer is yes, no question about it and for two reasons. And when I say associate, of course, I'm talking about listening and I'm talking about growing by them and accommodating them and helping them in their propagating of error. One reason is that you cannot associate with false teachers to this degree without being influenced by them. Impossible. You will be influenced by them. Isn't that why we tell our kids not to hang around with certain people? Right. We don't want them to be influenced. I don't think they're looking to be influenced, but they will. They will be. This was the Galatians' problem, and it showed up in the sinful segregation of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians at their table fellowship. Now, the other reason is this to associate with them means to support the propagation of their error. And God certainly holds us accountable for that. Now, I'm not making this up, all right? So let me give you a, f- a few examples. We find the Apostle John warning his churches in Asia Minor in his second postcard epistle of this very thing. He says in verses 7 to 11, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And the one who remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Yikes. Most wouldn't think that they're participating in the heresy of a heretic simply by showing him hospitality, but they are. They keep him well-rested and fed so that he can move on to the next church and wreak havoc. Instead of participating in useless deeds of darkness, Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, rather expose them. He would caution young Timothy when anointing elders... Timothy, do not lay hands upon anyone too quickly and thereby share responsibility for, their si- for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Guilt by association? Yes, it's really in the Bible. We must minister to false teachers, not with false teachers. The first is Christianity, the other is ecumenism. I think Jews comment about how we should think about both unbelievers whom we are trying to save from God's judicial wrath to come and genuine but disobedient believers that we are trying to save from the agony of God's parental discipline is striking. Are you ready? He says in verse 23 of his little epistle, Save others, snatch them out of the fire, and on this, and on some have mercy with fear. Here it is, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. We love the sinner, whether saved or unsaved, but we hate his sinful deeds. And we are careful not to be polluted by it ourselves. We carry out this mercy and this rescue mission with fear and trembling, beloved. We're in the world; we have to be, we have to be witnesses for Christ. But watch yourselves. So assure disobedient, disobedient believers that they can, in Christ, disassociate with false teachers and obey the word in order to avoid God's chastisement. Never say I cannot when God says you can. And finally, verse uh, or number four, show them how to be discerning. Show them how to be discerning or how to discern the self-contradictory and inconsistent way of the false teacher. Since we're talking about false teachers, and there are many, many hindrances and many encumbrances that we need to throw off, but we're talking about the false teacher as being one that kind of heads the list. We need to show Christians who are being misled by them their inconsistency and their self-contradictory. The art and science of debate is not a skill that most people have, much less enjoy. The secular version of this is logic. It it was developed in ancient India, in China, and in Greece. Those in the church who have honed this skill are called apologists, defenders of the faith. And we're grateful for them and for the defense that they make for the reliability of the Bible. Now maybe you, you know that Seminaries actually offer a degree in apologetics. As I say, it's both an art and a science. Now, you may not consider yourself to be an apologist, but you, along with all other Christians, are responsible to know the word well enough to defend the faith. And all the more so to the Christians who've been misled by false teachers as the Galatians had been, Paul lays out two general principles that all Christians, whether they are helping or they are receiving help, need to know. And one is this, false teachers are self-contradicting. They are. They may be consistently false, but as far as supporting their view from Scripture, you could be assured they will be quite... quite contradictory look at verse 11. but as for me brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been eliminated. Now Paul argues here that what the false teachers accused him of was what they themselves were actually guilty of, namely preaching circumcision. This is the, this is the, 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 the crazy thing about about their accusation. There's no question that Paul had preached the necessity of circumcision for a right standing before God during his pre-conversion life when he was a Pharisee. Since his Damascus Road experience, however, he jettisoned that message for the gospel of grace. For the false teachers to accuse Paul of still preaching this is not only ridiculous on their part, but quite inconsistent because they wind up indicting themselves. How so? Well, if he were preaching a message of circumcision, which is what they preached, and they were persecuting him for it, then they indict themselves. Paul were uh, was not, of course, preaching circumcision. He was preaching the gospel of grace. Do you see the contradictory, the contradiction? That they, that they present, why persecute him for preaching their message if that were true? And the fact that they persecuted him obviously proves that he was not preaching circumcision. It's an airtight logic right here. Moving on, though, we also need to show uh, the, uh, how the false teachers are inconsistent. and That would be part of our ministry to wayward Christians. In verse 12, Paul calls the Judaizers inconsistent in their view. He says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even emasculate themselves. Surprisingly harsh words from the apostle. But they are not simply a wish that his enemies would do harm to themselves. Certainly not. No, I believe that Paul's wish was his way of pointing out their inconsistency or the inconsistency of their view. You see, in the ancient world, and more specifically in Paul's world, there were pagan cults that called for the castration of temple officials. This was, this was sort of the, the, the mainstay in, in cults. It was a way of eliminating, you see, all potential distractions and divided loyalties on the part of the official. He could now concentrate on the things at hand. In North Galatia, while Paul wrote, the cult of Sibyl was alive and well, and it required their priests to be castrated. The Galatians in, in the South no doubt knew of the cult. They could not have. And Paul may be, may be drawing on this image in a sarcastic way to say, in essence... If the Judaizers place this much value in the removal of a man's foreskin, then let them go all the way and castrate themselves to show just how devoted they are by keeping their own principle to the fullest extent. In other words, be consistent. Come on, let the knife finish the job. All false Bible teachers are inconsistent. They are self-contradictory and they're inconsistent. They have have to be beloved whenever they try to wed two competing bodies of information, the Bible and error. That's what's going to happen. This is a formula for inconsistency. It's always easier to catch false teachers and inconsistencies when they use the Bible as part of their belief system. You cannot make the Bible compatible with error. Well, I want to wrap up our time uh with this one concluding thought and i uh I saved the best for last, but it's also a little bit heavy so you need you need to, to 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 prepare yourselves put your thinking caps on It's so important that we preserve God's absolute truth and know how to wield it well in these last days without it, we're lost we 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 we, we, we we don't know how to discern good from evil, right from wrong. All right? This is exactly the point that Paul makes with a literary device that he uses, which, which repeats the same word in a text just in a different form. In this case, Paul does this to make an important contrast between false error, error and false teaching and God's truth, alright? I'm going to show it to you now. I'm referring to verses 7, 8, and 10. Paul, makes emph- uh, and, or Paul emphasizes the importance of God's Word, that is our confidence, over against the word of the false teachers that amounts to nothing more than self-confidence. Now the beauty of this literary device is missing from the English translation. So I'm going to translate it for you using the same word that would have communicated to the Galatians. But first, an explanation I think is needed. The Greek word that Paul repeats in different forms three times means to believe in or to have confidence in. Really kind of the same thing. The first occurrence of this word is in verse 7, and it actually is translated confidence. Who hindered you that you should have confidence in the truth? The second word is in verse 8, and it is persuasion. That is, to be led to believe in something or have confidence in something. You see the relation. But since one's belief system is one's confidence, the false teaching that is meant here can also mean self-confidence. And what the Judaizers' message amounts to is self-confidence, not confidence in God's truth. So you can see the contrast that Paul makes in verses 7 and 8 simply by using a form of the same word, confidence. We find the same word again in verse 10, where it is translated confidence as well. I have confidence in your God-given ability to reject one and embrace the other. That is, reject the error and embrace truth. So three forms of the same word repeated three times with a kind of deliberate rhyme so that when heard, read, um, it it, it would be for the purpose of making this important contrast memorable. Kind of sing-songy. You know, we 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 remember things like that that are sing-songy. Maybe you picked up on the fact that I used the same literary device in the title of the message: "Be faithful to the faithful to be faithful." Three words, each with their own nuance, to make the, to to, uh, to put the gist across or the gist of the message, uh, and to make it as memorable as possible for you. The best way. We can do, or we can capture Paul's sense in the English here. Verses 7, 8, and 10 is this way. Who hindered you that you should not have confidence in the truth, but a self-confidence that did not come from him who calls you. But I have confidence in you, or in your God-given ability, to make the right choice between the two. Now let me repeat and say it is so important that we preserve God's absolute truth, our confidence, and know how to wield it well in these last days because without it we're lost as to discern good from evil, right from wrong. And this was not only Paul's point, but it was Solomon's point as well. In Proverbs chapter 28, verses 4 and 5, Solomon says, "...those who reject the law praise the wicked." But those who keep the law pit themselves against them. The evil do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. We see this working out even in secular America with those who rebel against the secular law. As a result, they become aimless, unable to know good from evil. We've seen this happen. And this happens on a spiritual plane as well. We turn our backs on God's truth. We lose our moral compass, the light of the truth, to see our way through the moral darkness, our identity, our refuge, our ability to make righteous decisions. So let's let Paul's words to Timothy be for us as well as we close. Protect what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And our Father, we are so grateful for this time together, for the Word of God and this part of the Word which you have given to us for our benefit. We pray, O God, that we would take to heart the truths that are here, that we might walk more confidently in these last days where it really counts that we might might live Christ to the world and that we may see your elect come to faith in Christ and join us in this wonderful and holy endeavor, this great race, this good fight for your glory, for your honor and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.